Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the health department opens up new sites as the state continues its coronavirus vaccine rollout. Then, Mississippi scores poorly in a new study assessing tobacco control. Plus, a Jackson hospital is the first in the state to offer a new breast cancer treatment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Mississippi Department of Health is opening new coronavirus vaccination sites in an effort to expand vaccine access in the state. The two new drive through locations will be stationed in the cities of Vicksburg and Monticello. Jim Craig, senior deputy at the Department of Health, says these sites will help reach more eligible Mississippians. We have two new facilities coming on board uh, Pemberton Mall in Warren County and also in Lawrence County at the Senior Center. Since January 4th, when we started these drive-through operations, we have administered 80,484 doses within those sites. We'll be providing over 30,000 doses, which is our normal cadence to provide 30,000 doses per week uh, through the uh, first doses through these drive-through sites. And we will be administering 49,000, better than 49,000 doses of first and second doses in the drive-through locations throughout Mississippi. Um, As you you note, we strategically placed these uh, drive-through clinics throughout the regional concept so that we would have vaccine available throughout the state of Mississippi um, through the drive-through operations. We are contacted by a number of counties, boards of supervisors and others about additional drive-through locations in their counties. Uh, We worked this week to develop some guidance to provide to those counties to let them know all the things that would be necessary if they want to operate a county location for vaccine. Uh, A question we get quite often is, well, you know, if I want to have a county site, is it just people from my county? And these are state vaccination sites. So when the appointments go on the state system, people from around the state can travel to any of these locations to receive 
vaccination. So it's not limited to just that county. The state has topped 200,000 first doses of the coronavirus vaccine. Both the Pfizer and Moderna products require two doses. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says the department and its partners have developed a steady rhythm to get shots to residents efficiently. We're by and large very pleased with the vaccine rollout as it stands right now. Uh, More than 200,000 Mississippians have received a first dose of vaccine. Uh, We've given well over 225,000 total vaccines if you include second doses. Um, We've got a pretty good rhythm going on right now, and we've got great partners. Um, I'll tell you that the drive-thru clinics, and I'll let Mr. Craig go into more detail in a moment, but the drive-thru clinics are working well, um, and he's devoted a lot of time making sure they run smoothly. That does consume about 30,000 doses per week uh, to the locations that receive receive uh, the vaccine for the drive-thrus. Beyond that, we depend upon our local clinical hospital uh, partners to make sure that they get the vaccine to their communities. And every clinic, every hospital approaches it a little bit differently, but we're working very closely to make sure not only that they can get it out efficiently and effectively, but also account in, in an accountability uh, sort of approach such that um, we can keep track of how much they're using and how quickly they're using it so that we can make sure that it's efficiently distributed geographically and throughout the state, but also to address underlying health disparities, whether that's because of geography, whether that's because of income, or whether it's because of, of uh, race or ethnicity. The new locations and expansion of vaccine availability comes as the state is still in the midst of its most severe stretch of the pandemic. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says while hospitalizations are down, case numbers still represent high community transmission. You know, when we look at the trends, we are starting to see some some declines in uh, a number of indicators. We've seen some improvement in the number of folks who were hospitalized with covid We've seen some improvement in the number of folks who have required uh, to be admitted to the ICU or even to be on a ventilator. And we've seen some declines in emergency department visits for COVID-related illnesses as well. And all of those things are great. Um, But when we think about where we are compared even to the very large surge that we had over the summer, which um, seems small in comparison with what we're dealing with now, We are still seeing a lot of cases, 2,000 cases in a single day uh, reported out from the health department is still uh, indicative of widespread transmission throughout the state. And we are still seeing um, a lot of deaths. Obviously, in December, when you look at the numbers for the deaths that actually occurred during the month of December, not reported out, but actually occurred during the month of December, uh, we reached over 1,000 deaths in December. Uh, to date in January, we have reached uh, almost the same number. Mississippi has reported nearly 60,000 cases of COVID-19 in January with over 1,200 reported deaths. Coming up, Mississippi scores poorly in a new study assessing tobacco control. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. 
If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition. I'm Karen Brown. A newly released report finds Mississippi is failing to support efforts that help reduce tobacco use. The annual report card from the American Lung Association gives the state an overall F, an F rating for not adequately funding tobacco prevention programs or creating enough clean air regulations. Ashley Lyerly is with the Lung Association's Mississippi office. She shares more about the report with our Desiree Frazier. We have certain metrics um, in all of the five categories. So, you know, um, Mississippi in particular has a very low cigarette tax at about, you know, 68 cents. Um, And so, you know, that's about what the 40th lowest um, in the U.S. Um, You know, currently Mississippi only funds the um, tobacco program, tobacco prevention and control program at about 27.4% of the kind of recommended um, CDC best practices um, spending recommendation. Um, and then we, you know, we don't have a statewide smoke-free air law in Mississippi. Um, there's been a lot of work at the local level um, to eliminate exposure to secondhand smoke in public places and workplaces, but we don't have a statewide um, a statewide law. And then there are, you know, barriers to cessation service um, in Mississippi. And so all of those things um, kind of add up to, unfortunately, Fs in all of the categories. In the midst of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, states are struggling with so many issues involved with uh, access to health care and providing services for those who need it, who um, have COVID-related issues. Would this be the time to really look at how well states are doing uh, in funding a tobacco prevention and control program? I would say yes. I mean, I think what the pandemic has showed is that, you know, tobacco use is still the leading cause of preventable death and disease. Um, And, you know, what we're seeing among, you know, even smokers um, that, you know, may be diagnosed with COVID is that you are at higher risk for severe symptoms. Um, related to COVID. So I think now is the time for us to have those really serious conversations around those risk factors um, and saying we need to provide resources um, for individuals who are smokers to quit um, cessation resources. And I think part of that comes from, you know, ensuring that we have a well-funded um, state tobacco control program. Our state buildings, yes. um, there's no smoking allowed Many buildings now don't allow smoking or businesses. Why is this an issue at this point? Well, I mean, certainly, you know, there has been a trend um, for, you know, businesses to kind of voluntarily go smoke-free. We know there's been a significant movement um, across Mississippi uh, to eliminate exposure to secondhand smoke in, by local municipalities. Um, you know, about 30% or so of the population in Mississippi are covered by a smoke-free air policy. But we still have about 70% of the population that um, can be exposed to secondhand smoke when they walk into a public place, um, such as a restaurant or a bar or a gaming establishment. And we know that, you know, those individuals who work in that environment are um, disproportionately affected by exposure to secondhand smoke. Um, And so we really need to work to close those 
loopholes um, and have a statewide law so that everyone is protected. Because in Mississippi, you know, we have an adult smoking rate of about 20 percent. Um, this is significantly higher than the national average. What and is so the national if we're average? Gonna, national average is 14 percent. And so, you know, by having a, as we said, as I said earlier, a well-funded program, um, having a statewide smoke-free air law, you know, we can begin to, you know, impact the health of, of Mississippi residents um, by encouraging them to, to not smoke. Um, and also, you know, encouraging youth to not initiate by having that sort of behavior and social norm change um, by having a statewide smoke-free air law, you know, because I think what's also concerning um, is our high school e-cigarette use rate is, is at 21%, which is um, very high. And obviously we are still um, in a, you know, e-cigarette epidemic. Um, it is a serious public health threat um, that we see youth becoming possibly long-time, lifetime users of, of nicotine and tobacco products because of their initiation with e-cigarettes. There have been efforts to increase the cigarette tax from 68 cents, um, adding on either a dollar or a dollar fifty. It has not gained traction. Do you why? Why is this important in your estimation? Well, I mean, certainly we know that, you know, if we increase the price by a dollar, even a dollar fifty, you know, we're going to see reductions in um, youth initiation and a, and a consumption just in general of tobacco products. And so that is why, you know, we as the Lung Association with our partners with the effort to raise the, the cigarette tax are advocating and continue to for the last couple of years and will this year as well advocate for raising um, the cigarette tax. Um, in Mississippi because we know that it will have a, a significant public health impact. Ashley Lyerly is with the American Lung Association's Mississippi office. Mississippi scored an F rating in all five categories measured by the ALA, including failing marks for strength of smoke-free workplace laws and level of state tobacco taxes. Democratic Representative Bryant Clark of Ebenezer says he has authored a bill that prohibits smoking in workplaces, enclosed spaces, and certain outdoor areas. A few years ago, as far as... Uh Making the changes as far as smoking in, uh, in state buildings, we was actually one of the last states to to actually implement that, to outlaw that. Um, and then you know there was other efforts that has been done by municipalities and counties who have also followed suit and have uh, you know implemented uh, local ordinances and policies against it. Um, you know at one uh, at one time we was uh, hoping to try to increase the the the, the uh, tax on tobacco. Which all the studies suggest that that is a that is a deterrent when states increase the cost tax costs um a couple of years or so later, you begin to see the number of smokers uh drop, so that was something that we we pushed, but hadn't been able to get into major movement on that part in your bill, it stipulates uh that smoking would not be allowed in enclosed public places um workplaces private clubs. Tell us more about the bill. Well, again, uh, that bill is basically taking it a step further from, from what we have now. Right now, um, you know, whether it's a state regulation, a policy, or a municipal or a county, uh, most governmental buildings, uh, buildings don't, don't allow it. 
um, and there, um, and, and quite frankly, most um, a lot of public facilities, I mean private uh, public facilities uh, that's open to the public also have the same policy. But I think that uh, there's several other states have gone in that direction. I just think it's time for Mississippi to follow suit uh, to make it clear that, you know, we're we're not trying to you know, punish the smoker, but we're trying to protect the, the non-smoker, so to speak. So, you know, I'm not against anybody who choose to. But I do think that if you got a public facility where the general public is coming in and out, that um, you know, for the health of the entire state, that that should be it should be a little bit more uh, stricter, regulated than it presently is. Why hasn't the legislature passed uh, a, a tax, a higher tax on cigarettes? You know. It, I mean, quite frankly, I just really think it's, 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 it just goes back. I don't think it has anything to do with tobacco or, or what we're trying to do. I think it goes back to that, that political ideology of some people is that in it, they, they're just against in and all taxes. And um, so regardless of what the tax is, uh, we have, in this case, majority of the legislature that's just opposed to any type of uh, tax increase. Uh, although, uh, you know, the study has been done year after year that showed that over 65% of the, the people of the state of Mississippi actually is in, in favor of of um, a tax increase. And, and, and that number actually goes up even higher when uh, you tack on to the fact that uh, tax revenue from the increased tax will actually go to uh, Medicaid or other um you know, the healthcare uh, system in the state. So I think that's where it comes from. Democratic Representative Bryant Clark of Ebenezer with our Desiree Frazier. Clark does not believe the bill will make it out of committee. Coming up, a Jackson hospital is the first in the state to offer a new breast cancer treatment. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Right now, we need connection more than ever. StoryCorps is inviting you to record a conversation with a loved one remotely and archive it at the Library of Congress. Information about this limited virtual experience can be found at StoryCorps.org. StoryCorps is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A Jackson area hospital is the first in Mississippi to offer a new treatment method for early stage breast cancer. Targeted intraoperative radiotherapy is now available at Merritt, Merritt Health Women's Hospital and could completely replace the three to six week course of traditional external beam radiation. Dr. Philip Lay of Merritt Health explains the one day treatment. A lot of women choose, appropriate women with early stage breast cancer choose to preserve their breasts. And survival between women who preserve their breasts with partial mastectomy and radiation is statistically the same as women who have total mastectomy. Traditional radiation for breast cancer is radiating the whole breast once a day, Monday through Friday, for six and a half weeks. More and more, we have gone to shorter treatment times, especially in the time of COVID. You know, people want to have fewer encounters with the healthcare system. But that's a process called hypofractionation, where you just have fewer fractions, same total dose, it's still radiating the whole breast. 
for many years, we have been doing a process called partial breast irradiation in selected early-stage breast cancer patients. But um, there is this started in Europe and um, where we treat one time during surgery. We actually do the lumpectomy or the partial mastectomy and put a probe in into the wound and treat the patient while we're there, one time. This is after the tumor has been removed? The tumor's been removed, and we have a cavity, and, and we put a spherical probe in. Um, on the, it's on the end of an arm, um, and um, it's all draped and sterile and everything, and, and we, we approximate the tissue around it um, and then shield it with these little flexible lead drapes. And then depending on the size of the, of the sphere, the probe, and the size of the cavity, treat from anywhere from 17 to 42, 47, eight minutes. It just varies that the, the, the length of time depends on a, a number of factors and how they, they have to calculate what they call the dosimetry. And so the patient comes in, they get their, they get their breast cancer removed, get their lymph node sampled. And, um, we put this probe in and we do this one treatment and we're done. Does the woman re- remain under, uh, general anesthesia through this whole process? Yes. Yes. They're under anesthesia for whatever extra period of time it takes us to put the probe in and um, deliver the therapy. Does it affect recovery time at all? Not at all. Why is Merritt Health Women's Hospital, Women's Hospital, the first hospital in Mississippi to use this, this process? Well, okay. A um, couple of reasons. Um, number one, this um, this technology has been around um, for well over a decade. I've been trying to get this technology in Mississippi for over a decade. Haven't had any luck with the big hospitals. Plain and simple, not interested. Some of it was a reimbursement issue. For example, our largest private insurer will only pay to use this as what we call a boost dose. Many times when we when we do a lumpectomy, if a patient ends up having involved lymph nodes, they deliver the whole breast radiation, then they do a little boost dose, a little extra dose to the lumpectomy site. So our, our largest insurer will, will only pay for it as a boost dose, which is still reasonable. But um, Medicare uh, pays for it, and most insurers pay for it. So for the longest time, there was concerns about reimbursement. But also there were concerns about whether it was as equally effective as whole breast radiation. Basically, the way they design the trials is to see if it's what we call non-inferior. Not that it's better, but it's certainly not worse than whole breast radiation. The outcomes are the same. The outcomes of these patients with respect to recurrence of the tumor and survival are not worse or inferior to that of whole breast radiation, traditional whole breast radiation. But are they different? No, they're, they're not better. They're certainly not inferior to it. So you get the same outcome that you get with whole breast radiation. And there was a re- recently there was a trial called the TARGET. It's T-A-R-G-I-T-A trial published in the British Medical Journal, over 2,000 patients, that, that proved that, that it was not inferior to whole breast radiation. And in fact, obviously, logistically for the patients, it's a heck of a lot easier. It's not for every patient. It's for patients who are over 45 years of age, patients whose tumor are three centimeters or under, and patients who have negative lymph nodes. If for some reason we do their surgery and we get a report back that their lymph nodes are involved, 
then that treatment becomes their boost dose. It doesn't mean that having the lymph node involved doesn't mean you have to have your breast removed, but the treatment that we deliver intraoperatively becomes a boost dose, and it may still get whole breast radiation. But usually we've evaluated all these people preoperatively, and we have a pretty good idea if their nodes are involved. I also want to ask you about how the pandemic has affected women with breast cancer in terms of their own self-care and being able to get ongoing care from a medical facility. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. We haven't slowed down. <laughs> well, we really haven't. Early on in, in March and April, we we had a number of women that we uh, we delayed their surgery, but we put them on hormonal therapy. They had tumors that were responsive to hormonal manipulation. And so we put them on oral hormonal therapy, which is a very well-established thing to do preoperatively, as, especially in Europe, but it's catching on in North America. Um, at one point, I had 32 women on preoperative hormonal therapy. And, and as things started to kind of settle down in the summer, we started to bring those people in and operate on them. Um, so I, I, there may be some women that have delayed their screening um, early on, they weren't, they weren't doing screening mammograms, but I think we've caught up with all that um, and, um, and really haven't slowed down much. I think all the services that, they're, that, that they normally need uh, for screening and diagnosis and treatment are all still there. Dr. Philip Lay is a surgical oncologist with Merritt Health Women's Hospital. Thank you so much for sharing this new information. Very, very interesting. You are very welcome. Have a great day. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.